Hello and welcome to Sync Music Matters, a podcast that explores the beautiful relationship between music and the moving image. My name's Jim Hustrip and I'm your host on this journey, as each week I chew the fat with industry professionals who, on a daily basis, work with music for visuals. Now you might immediately assume that I'm talking about composers, but I'm also talking about editors, music supervisors, directors and anyone else who's involved with the synchronous process of pairing audio and visuals. Today I'm talking to producer, film editor and post-production specialist Stephen Harron. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Sync Music Matters. Thank you again to AudioSocket ASX for letting me use that piece of music as the opening titles. Um, It's called Dark Arts and was written by me. So what can you expect from today's conversation with Stephen Harron? So Stephen wears a number of different hats. He is both producer, editor and a post-production specialist. So I was very interested to get his take on the application of music in TV and film, uh, in which he has numerous credits. So we go under the skin of his Dark Materials, which is the series based on the Philip Pullman books. He talks about the active role he played in re-temping the series so that the music had a bit more weight and gravitas to it. He talks about the idea that if the music was too traditional or classical, that it had a tendency to feel a bit too twee. So he was temping it with music from the likes of Trent Reznor, who did Social Network, Marco Beltrami, who did A Quiet Place, um, but was also using ideas provided by the series composer Lorne Balfe. Um, but this is obviously prior to edit. This is a suite of music that Lorne provided um, before um, the edit was even finalised. So the idea of temping an episode with the composer's own music. Um, and this is something that we covered in uh, episode eight um, with uh, Paolo Pandolfo, who was editor on The Crown. We also go under the skin and talk about the very different approach to soundtracking Northern Soul, which is the Elaine Constantine film starring Steve Coogan. The soundtrack for that was made up entirely of original songs, so it's interesting contrasting those two processes. Um, As with a lot of the interviews that I do, we end up talking about the lack of melody in modern film score. I don't know whether it's me pushing this agenda or it's just a common theme. Could be either. It's something I chatted about with Isabel Waller-Bridge in episode 5 and indeed with Nanita Desai in episode 8. And Nanita cited one of the reasons um, as being that directors are sometimes reticent to commit emotionally. Um, Stephen has some alternative theories and um, equally fascinating. So we dig into that. Um, We chat about the pitching process for composers uh, when it comes to major TV series and films. Uh, The revealing process of watching audience previews during the production process. Um, And Stephen and I share our love for the epic guitar riffs of the late Dimebag Daryl of the band Pantera. So grab yourself a Viennese swirl, kick back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Stephen Harron. Ooh, and one more thing. If you'd be kind enough to pop on over to Apple Podcasts and just leave a quick rating and a review, I would be hugely grateful. It just helps the podcast reach as many people as possible. That's it. Thanks. Bye. Stephen Harron is a producer and film editor with an expertise in post-production and has a variety of award-winning film and TV credits. He's currently producing his Dark Materials Season 3, having been a producer on Season 2, which won two BAFTAs for post-production. 
He was also co-producer and editor on season one, for which he received the BAFTA Cymru nomination. Stephen's feature editing credits include Biffa-nominated Eternal Beauty, Sometimes Always Never, starring Bill Nighy, BAFTA-nominated documentary Kingdom of Us, and BAFTA-nominated indie hit Northern Soul. His television credits include BAFTA-nominated miniseries Mrs. Wilson, starring Ruth Wilson, and Emmy-nominated Black Mirror. Stephen Aaron, thanks very much for joining me on Sync Music Matters. Thanks for having me. Um, so... I, before we sort of dig into anything, I'm going to sort of start with the first question, which I like to ask every guest, which is um, if we sort of rewind to a, a young Stephen uh, gallivanting around the streets of uh, Dublin. Um, if someone had asked you, what would you like to be when you grow up? What would you have replied? Uh, I think originally I wanted to be an author, whatever that meant. I think that was ba- I think that was basically based on the fact that I loved Roald Dahl. Um, and I... I I consumed quite a lot of uh, books at that age. Tintin, Asterix, um, and Roald Dahl were the ones that stick out. So I think, I think that's kind of where I thought I was, if you like. Um, and then by the time I was a teenager, um, I started. I'd always watched a lot of film. Um, my older brother uh, would have shown me an awful lot when I was younger as well, um, and passed on a a fair bit of knowledge and kind of insight. Um, and I think by the time I got into, into my teenage years, I started kind of moving over that direction, if you like, um, culminating in getting a camcorder when I was uh, 15, I think, 16, and making some uh, loose uh, documentaries with friends. So um, that's kind of, by that point, I kind of thought, actually, I wanted to pursue filmmaking. What, what, again, whatever that meant, I didn't really know in concrete terms how you did it. Sure. And how did it kind of that distill down? Because obviously filmmaking, large topic, it could have gone directing, it could have gone, well, it did go editing. Um, but what was the sort of process of, or your process in terms of determining which bit you were most interested in? I think that, you know, the way that filmmaking is framed culturally, um, even, you know, when you're growing up at that age without having any, you know, industry connections and any understanding beyond what you've seen and heard of, um, directing is, you know, posited as the centre of it. Um, so that's what everyone hears about. Um, and so initially that was definitely interesting. But I think that, I don't know, I, I, I did look into applying to film school, um, which I didn't pursue. I then went into the degree at the University of Warwick um, in English and film, uh, English lit and film studies, if you like, which was a, a really good course, but uh, not practical, no practical filmmaking. Um, and somewhere through that, I just kind of, I don't know, I, I kind of, uh, you know, just developed my, what I felt was my understanding um, and my taste and my ability to talk, if you like, which is one of the great skills you get from a degree. Um, and so when I, I graduated, I didn't really, again, have a very specific aim. I was a, a little bit loose in that sense. Um so I moved home for the summer um, and tried to find runner jobs, got some work experience in Belfast at different companies um, and eventually got a, a runner job at a, a good kind of technical company in the West End in London um, and moved over, started that job. And that facility, who were kind of quite well regarded at the time, they worked on uh, high-end features that were shooting at the time, kind of providing technical um, expertise, if you like. Um, 
so they were doing like at the time Harry Potter movies and, and what have you. Um, and that meant that I was quite quickly exposed to kind of high end filmmaking, not in a, not in a creative role, but it meant that I was meeting people very quickly, mostly cutting rooms, uh, editors and assistant editors, the odd line producer, met the odd director, I think. Um, and that, that kind of exposure felt quite, I don't know, it, it felt quite natural in a sense, you know, that I got seemed to get on quite well with the people that I met um, and bit by bit just kind of fell into the, the idea that the cutting room seemed a kind of graspable way into filmmaking. I got, to me, production, because I didn't have any connection or experience of it, um, was kind of amorphous and, and quite hard to, to grasp at all. I looked into it briefly, but I, d- I didn't get very far, to be honest. Whereas something, you know, I was having these immediate relationships with people that were quite fun and we seemed to be kind of reasonably similar people. Um, and so then that kind of ended up in my first uh, film role as a trainee editor on a feature. Obviously, you are produ- in production now because you're working on production of um, His yeah. Dark Material Season 3. How did that sort of, you know, as you describe it, amorphous production role that was sort of seemed sort of almost intangible. How did that editorial sort of editing sort of merge into that? I mean, it came specifically from his dark materials. Uh, I was I was on season one as an editor, um, kind of like quite late in the process after the shoot. So uh, trying to kind of bring it, help bring it together alongside the other editors. And I took, I kind of naturally and with no kind of plan, started taking a slightly more uh, leadership role within it. And then the exec producer, Jane Tranter, who's the boss of the production company, Bad Wolf, said to me, you know, do you want to carry on with us once editing is finished and help us um, with the rest of post-production, which would mean sound music, the grade and what have you, up to, to get the show delivered. It was a very complex show to deliver. So because I had a lot of all these post-production skills, if you like, a lot of experience from kind of higher end stuff or equally high end, let's say. Um, it meant that I kind of, uh, I fell quite naturally into it again. It was quite easy. I found it quite easy. It was very, very, it was very hard work, but I, I just understood what needed to be done if you like. Um, and then that led into season two where I went back as a producer. Um, again, the shoot was actually over. So I solely, my, my first, uh, stage of that was working with the editors that they had i didn't do any editing on it worked with the editors to get the cut into shape um obviously i had a, I had a certain take on how the show needed to be told and put together and worked with those editors um and then carried on the rest of the process uh, as i had on season one to the end and then season three because there was a little time gap i was able to come back much earlier um and come back and pre-prep and actually feed into script development, let's say, um, with the knowledge and understanding that had built up about the show specifically over two seasons and hopefully learning from some of the mistakes we've made and what have you and what we could make better and how we could make it play and, and avoid just some of the pitfalls that I felt we had fallen into a few times. Um, so that meant just kind of feeding in from the ground up, if you like, rather than um, as someone put it, uh, picking up the broken plates at the end of the process. Um, yeah. So I was there to try to catch the plates as they fell, if you like. Yeah, okay. And just for anyone listening who kind of, because I, well, I think it can obviously vary, but how would you sort of describe the role of producer 
And then also, I mean, and, and is your production role sort of specifically tied to the, the post-production part of it? Um, that's that's like a primary concern, but I guess the uh, more highfalutin way to put it on season three is that I'm more, because so, I'm so inclined toward the storytelling of the show, it means that I'm looking at story and the storytelling of the show from the point of view of script, uh, cast, direction, uh, photography, um, and, and just trying to see it holistically, which I think is the holistic approach is something that I think is, you know, very much comes from an editing background. Um, directors obviously have it too. Producers have it as well, clearly. Um, but as an editor, uh, it's something in my experience anyway, was something that I was always trying to bring um, and look at the bigger picture. Uh, I think I've got an ability to kind of look at detail in minute detail, but also pull back and see where we need to go well that's interesting because we were i would talk interviewed michael price as well and and we were also talking about that ability to sort of focus in on the micro detail but also be able to stand back and sort of see the see the bigger picture and actually certainly as composers sometimes the collaborative nature of working with editors or producers or execs whoever it is that they sometimes provide the the perspective for the creatives who are sort of maybe um so deep in the weeds that they they sort of lost track of it yeah i think and i think it only comes from experience i mean some people might have that as a natural skill it took me a while to develop it um but it's something that i find quite easy um and is that, did, was it also the, that case when you were sort of as an editor were you able to sort of see those two different i think it probably took me a while to develop it I think I probably I might have begun off thinking that everything is in detail, um, that everything, which is you know it's partly true, um, but you only work out the, the significance of the detail uh, by pulling back. So um, I think I think it took a while, and it probably you know when you're doing a film, what, what's quite interesting and specific to filmmaking, uh, feature filmmaking as opposed to TV is that you, depending on the budget and depending on the appetite for it, you very often have to watch the film with an audience. Um, That might mean that you preview it at an early stage, or certainly means that if you're like I was, I would go see things that I worked on in the cinema with an audience after they'd come out, just again, sometimes could be months and a year after you'd finished it, just because I've always been fascinated by um, people's responses. which again is a helpful thing to be interested in uh, when you're at, when you're editing, and I, I think that um, that experience of knowing, or at least honing your instinct um, on when things tend to work and not work for audiences, what what things from my history uh, work and don't work, you know, I, I try to feed that into everything I do. But you you don't you very very rarely, if ever, have that experience on TV. It's it's more bubble like in that sense, which has its pros but I, I think is also actually a flaw in the process yeah and does does the way in which you view the finished product with an audience simply change the way that you're viewing it as well knowing that you're in an auditorium full of people who are viewing it yeah your your anxieties especially when you're especially when you're mid process like before it's finished um, oh yeah, your anxieties about all the things that you think aren't good or don't work or that you're concerned about or whatever it is, or I'm sure as well, the things that you feel confident in suddenly get kind of knifed um, by, by a lack of response in the room. You can just feel it in the temperature 
quite literally you can you can sense it you know if you're doing a preview as i did a, a fair few of them with an audience of 200 people uh, in the uk or the us you very very quickly know whether the film's working or not yeah. and, and that, ex- that exposure it's very brutal um but that exposure to that process i think is invaluable and i wish they did it in tv to be honest i, I understand why they don't um and then the other thing that you learn from it which i think is really really useful is how you choose as filmmakers to interpret that response um they might feel that the first 10 minutes, you know, in terms of the things that they often feed back on, you know, they feed, let's say they fill in a questionnaire, they do a Q&A at the end. Uh, recurring things tend to come up regardless of the film. Usually it's the first 10, 15 minutes are too slow right. uh, or, you know, I think the, the middle sags, that kind of thing. Um, and all of that is really useful. But And then you just have to decide, well, does that really matter or is that something that actually is a true problem? Because, the, you know, there's a difference between really deep problems um, that are worth solving and relatively deep problems that you actually need to leave well alone and just move on because uh, you can't you can't fix everything yeah as well i suppose you have to be discerning in that interest because creating by committee i sort of find this with so i run a a, a team of writers um for a, for a production library and you quickly realize that if you play a piece of music to five different people each five of those people will have ideas about what they would change and they're not always exactly the same so in that instance you're sort of playing it to an audience of multiple people who all may have opinions on it but you also have to have the sort of i suppose conviction to go okay some of that you're going to take some of that you're going to leave and you have to also rely on i suppose your own judgment because otherwise i think you know one of the things you have to develop as an editor and which I think I have bring into the producing role is you get a very clear, strong sense of your own taste. Um, And, you know, my taste as as such, it doesn't apply um, in rough terms to all things equally. It's, it's, it's about how I apply my taste and my sense of storytelling or my sense of what I think is good um, to each individual thing. And I, I try to do it in a, reasonably like non-prejudicial way you know i might i might have worked on films that weren't necessarily exactly my type of film but i'll try and i hope contribute um a kind of thought process that helps make it as good as it can be um rather than make just making it what i want it to be yes yeah okay and i suppose again that ties into that sort of being able to sort of see the bigger picture and step back and have that kind of yeah. that macro macro overview um and just as well, you, you mentioned sort of like quite often that people sort of say that the first 10, 15 minutes are a bit slow. Obviously, you know, we live in an age where apparently people's attention spans are getting shorter. As is mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that is that something you sort of have to factor in now that you maybe didn't 20, 20 years ago? I, I, I think, to be honest, 20 years ago, the first 10, 15 minutes of a lot of films were too fast because they probably listened to that note too much. Right, OK. So, so I think I remember even at the time, even some of the films I'm thinking of I was working on more as an assistant, um, you know, I saw what happened to the first 10 minutes, 20 minutes because of that note, and it wasn't good. <laughs> uh, so, so I think, you know, it's why you often find that it's still the case, I'm sure. Uh, it's hard to think of examples, but, you know, that films just kind of rush through their premise just so they can just get to get to the point where it becomes interesting, whether that's the arrival of the main antagonist or whatever it is, or the, you know, the bomb going off. I don't know. Um, so it, it's, it, it's, it's funny. I think the, uh, 
I think the streaming, the streaming thing is, is I'm sure is making it worse. And I, I mean, I have to admit, I find it quite difficult to not to stick through something for its duration, but I actually find it quite hard to stick through an awful lot of things past episode one, but because I, I just don't find them very interesting. Um, but that's just taste as well. But I think it's, it's, it's really tricky, but when you're, when you're doing TV, you know, I had to very quickly get used to a new version of that, which was to do with, for example, well, what are we doing before the title sequence? You know, how do you, how do you draw people in before the titles? And that's like kind of the recur- almost the recurring thing. And then how do we leave them at the very, very end to bring them back? So it's, it's, it's a quite a different, um, uh, set of challenges, if you like, but but like not dissimilar to feature filmmaking. Yeah, and it's interesting you've mentioned that as well because one of my guests, Andrew Stannard, um, we were talking about um, sort of melody in music, and that sort of in the eighties and possibly into the nineties, melody was much more sort of prevalent certainly in sort of TV TV and film scores. Um, you know, you think back to the 80s, there's so many incredible TV programmes which had these amazing sort of uh, theme tunes. Perhaps see it, I don't know, less now, but maybe it is coming back. Does I think, I, it's, um, I think, it's, I think it's disappeared, a lot of um, melodic uh, composing, I'll be honest. Yeah. Uh, so Andrew posited the theory that one of the reasons, and I think this was something that Daniel Pemberton had talked about, I can't remember, but it was the idea that um, back in the day, you sort of had this long sort of title sequence with some great music because it was, you couldn't just tune in and watch it whenever. It was sort of like a appointment to view. So it was almost like you had the, the music to sort of get people ready, like, oh, okay, like, let's get right. ready. And so everyone would sort of sit down, yeah, sit yeah, down yeah. and watch it. Yeah. Is that is that kind of still part and parcel of the sort of title sequence? Because you mentioned the tit- um, what's happening before the title and then the title sequences. And you see increasingly sort of on Netflix, the sort of more elaborate sort of uh, CGI sort of title sequences with quite often commercial um, music. What role does that play in your mind in terms of capturing people's attention and, and sort of leaving a lasting impression? Well, on Historic Materials, we have an exceedingly expensive 90-second title sequence that, <laughs> that we, all, we all want everyone to sit through uh, and to which Lauren did a great theme. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's depressing to me that people might be speeding through it, but um, but I'm a bit old-fashioned. I mean, I watch end credits, so what can I say? Like, I don't skip through anything. I watch the whole thing from start to finish, uh, not always to episode two, but, you know, I try to give episode one a go, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, well, I think it's it's, it's part and parcel of setting the scene, isn't it? And sort of it's a statement of what's to come in many ways. Um, awesome. Well, we'll um, I think it's probably a good time to sort of go um, go under the skin. Under the skin. So dark, his Dark Materials, um, interesting angle here because obviously on the first season you were involved as an editor um, and on the sort of second and third you're sort of involved in more of a sort of production capacity. I'm kind of interested in how obviously you touched on sort of how the roles are sort of different but in terms of um on the first series when you're working with um lawn on the music and presumably the music was, was already starting because you you came in to sort of finish up didn't you, you weren't starting from the basis but- yeah it was at a it, would, it was at a curious kind of point which was that um the execs were talking to lauren um and liked him a lot and he had uh put together some suites um, some kind of uh, thematic character material. Um, can't, I can't quite remember how many, quite quite a lot actually, um, to give a sense of what he thought was the sound um, and where he could go with it. So that kind of existed in the background when I started, but actually 
what was the process I was getting into, which was re-editing um, to try and kind of improve it and bring it forward. Um, one of the things that was part of that, from my point of view, was to re-temp score it. Um, so I had a music editor who did some of it, and then I did whatever other proportion uh, as I was recutting myself, just kind of independently. Um, and, and that wasn't really based on um, any conversations, uh, creative conversations I'd had with execs. That was just more to do with what personally I felt was lacking in the temp that they had and where I thought it should go uh, to make sense of it and, and to make it basically more enjoyable to watch. Um, and can you can you touch on what you did think was missing from the I th- temp? Now, I was th- I've been thinking about this the last few days, trying to remember about what what was it, and it all exists on some hard drives in Cardiff, which we could we could we could double check. Um, so 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 basically, the um, one of the there were kind of a few pitfalls that you could fall into on the show, which uh, at that time, you know, maybe was the case. Um, if you scored it with something that felt reasonably uh, classical, and by that I mean, um, that's a hard word to that's a hard word to define, actually, isn't it? If you if you were to do something that was seemingly like a little bit overly fantasy or a little bit um, uh, overly lyrical again these aren't great adjectives um you could end up making the show feel very twee yeah um and cute and not serious and and uh, grown up enough very quickly um and so you couldn't really take a harry potter score which works great for harry potter and put it on this because it, it just what it would do was kind of dangerous i felt um I forget there was a lot of a lot of music that I regard as very very good music on there you know there were things like um originally a lot of Alexandre Desplat scores which are fantastic scores in their own right for the films they're written for um but when put on the show began to kind of make it too easy too cute Mm. too light weirdly um so I would have put I forget what a lot of it was, but I, some of the things I did put on were things like kind of the, reasonably, I feel the opposite. So things like uh, I put a bunch of stuff from a quiet place on it for, for suspenseful sequences, which was a kind of modern sound, quite meaty um, and kind of uh, very, I mean, a bit droney, which is not where Lauren goes. Uh, when you talk about melody, you know, he's a much more of a melodic composer. Um, but it maybe a little bit more droney than we ended up, let's say. But it kind of had a feel that made it feel serious um, and gave it just a bit of heft, which it, it just needed. It needed weight. So weirdly, to move it forward and push it uh, forward story-wise, weirdly, it needed more weight. Um not not to make it more meaningful, but by li- by literal like sound audible weight, um, like a, a kind of thick sound. Um, and I'm trying to remember what some of the other things I put on it were. I put on bits from um, a couple of bits that I thought worked quite well, like um, uh, the Grey Mark Streitenfeld score. You know, some of these scores which are you know, um, do as I say, do get a bit droney, but they they just kind of gave it a. What I felt was a like a kind of a seriousness and a maturity that that helped it move forward and and, and wasn't wasn't too afraid of getting um, um, 
uh, scary when it needed to be scary, let's say. Things like that. Not that there's lots of that in the show, but there's, you know, elements of that. Um, struggling to remember what some of the other bits were. But anyway, and um, oh, I put a bit from Logan on it, I remember as well. Uh, some kind of re- recurring pieces from Logan. Um, and then, so then we were kind of editing along. The recuts kind of were going down quite well and the rescoring was getting received quite well. Seemed to be kind of supporting the direction, if you like. Um, and then around the same time, we started sitting with Lauren and started spotting um and bit by bit trying to build up the sound and you know he brings very naturally a very modern um confident sound to it um it's, it's not i think that confidence in melody and in like the way that melody gets used um is really really useful for the show like it gives it the show at, at all times when it's in when it's having trouble it needs propulsion um and lauren provides that in abundance um, and when you say as well, so you're talking about you were picking cues for the temp, which you felt they were actually sort of by virtue were actually sort of slightly more droney. Did Lorne take those and take it out of the realm of drone, or was there kind of still an element of that? Because this is something you know, drone is much more prevalent, and I've talked about this with Isabel Waller Bridge and Anita Desai um, in that. And we, you know, you mentioned as well that melody's gone because actually quite often it's very much sort of like. Um, wow! <laughs> yeah. I'm going to sample that. I might use it. Yeah, um, yeah, please. So yeah, so is it is it is that something that you sort of deliberately wanted to sort of step away from, or is that is that still kind of in there? I think L- L- Lauren does, you know, in his own uh, work and other scores. I think it's fair to say that you know he does use a bit of it, um, but it tends to be very melodically driven so so there are there are probably little pieces in there and he used like he, he made certain instrument choices um that kind of lent itself to that he, he does tend to be um overly sound designy as i would put it which which i think is great because um apart from the fact that the sound design on the show is something separate and, and you know just as valuable and done by a separate group of people um you know it, it it doesn't want to counter that too much i think i think what he immediately brought was incredibly memorable um melodies and that were that were character led particularly sometimes theme led uh, as in the thematics of what was going on but it was the fact that they were character led so every character pretty much or all the main characters anyway had a or a group of people had a particular theme um many of which i can practically hum now if you like just because they they were they're all earworms you know it's extraordinary i remember there's one one theme that he brought in, which is it's the end of episode five, uh, when Lyra arrives in Balvanger, which is one of the key kind of locations of the first book. Um, it's one of the best uh, in the show as well, I think. And there was a, a a quite spare, ominous melody that he put as the first cue to introduce you into that environment. And I listened to it on a Friday, the very first time it had been sent over as a prospective cue. And I, I couldn't get it out of my head for days and days and days. And I've spent... I've spent the last two years trying to work out a way to get it back into the show just because it's because it's just incredibly good, yeah. Yeah. So so Nanita Desai, one of her sort of theories on why melody is less prevalent in modern score is because directors kind of sit on the fence emotionally. Is that something you would subscribe to or have you got an alternative theory? Um, I think there's a... I, I could think of a bunch of reasons... Um, I think one of the reasons is that might that might be true that there's a kind of 
I mean, I mean that said, I can think of a few composers. Desplat is like a, a, an obvious example to me. He's really melodic and beautiful melodies, and quite diverse in in the way he uses them. I think um, one of the reasons things have gone that way is a lot of drama, TV and film, has become heavily reliant on its scoring. And if you've got a whole load of score running through everything, it's very, very hard to sneak in melodies uh, as often as you might like. Um, And also, you might be in a situation, as sometimes you you often are, which is that you're heavily editing those cues and you might be heavily re-editing picture which means at a certain point it's very very hard even harder to get to get melody in um i think it's also just kind of it's approach though isn't it and also like i think i think of another reason which is that a lot of filmmaking this is incredibly generalizing a lot of filmmaking though on tv and in cinema now doesn't tend to take too much of a respite from dialogue and if you're not if you're not taking a moment to to look at a vista or you know the traditional places where you might think that melody historically can go on a film, um, again you're not going to be able to sneak much of it in. Um, and the art of underscoring, underscoring dialogue, let's say, which I is probably one of my favourite things really in terms of you know subtle scoring beneath beneath scenes, um, maybe also starts to fall away because. Yeah, because maybe directors or producers uh, aren't really thinking of the importance of it, aren't looking, for, aren't looking for it. They're just looking for a maybe. They're just looking for to- a tonal identity, and sometimes all of these th- things are being also being done so quickly that well, how much time do you have to create a memorable melody? Um, I mean, an ex- an example of that, which I I have very mixed feelings about, both very positive and reasonably negative is the way that David Fincher's films have been scored for a number of years now since, like, Social Network onwards. In other words, when he started working with Trent Reznor, whose work I love, and I'm a big Nine Inch Nails fan, way previous to that, um, I don't really... And I've used a lot of that stuff for temp, I'll be honest. I've used it because it's really easy to use a temp because you can just stick it on stuff and re-edit it, and it's actually... It's quite straightforward even though it's you know it's tonally complex and what have you um but i don't i don't personally regard it as really really interesting scoring it's more like akin to sound design and i think and i think as that type of music starts to infiltrate really good filmmaking i mean like really good filmmaking mind hunter is another example of it um it's tonal like i couldn't tell you what the okay i can remember the theme to mind hunter but i can't remember the theme, any other themes within it it's more about atmosphere and uh, tone um, and I think ultimately, you know, this is again, so simplistic, but if you're a filmmaker and you're making a moody crime show, you're probably going to look at Mindhunter and go, well, that worked really well, didn't it? Which it did. It was great. Uh, well, maybe let's just, uh, stick some moody, like underneath everything, you know, um, it's tricky, but I come from, uh, well, I'm an age, if you like, uh, whereby, you know, I grew up listening to much more classical scoring, including a lot of the things I would have loved when I was young. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't name you a single theme from a Marvel movie. Uh, it's partly because I haven't really watched most of them, I'll be honest. But, um, but the ones I have watched, I found turgid. Um, 
but um, that's just my age and taste. But anyway, but I don't think that the approach to scoring in those films is, you know, let's say as interesting or memorable as their equivalent in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Well, you're certainly not alone in, in, in having I, that. No, I feel, I feel comforted by that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's definitely, I think, a, a lot of people miss. And I don't know, I'm, I'm hopeful that one day sort of melody will, will come back with a... Lauren will give it a try. Lauren will try. Yeah, absolutely. He'll uh, advocate that. Um, so in terms of your process from um, series one of His Dark Materials to kind of now where you're not hands-on editing, but you're sort of producing, has your... Obviously, your role has changed in terms of music, in terms of you're not making decisions about temp score, or are you? I mean, have you been involved in the sort of temp scoring process? And Yeah, I mean, I, I would, you know, the on season three, let's say, the editors, I think we had five editors, um, who are all very good, and uh, all very good at temp scoring, actually. Yeah, if I felt that there was something that wasn't quite right for a sequence or a section, or that was, you know, either that was the use of an old law and cue or something brand new that they were bringing from somewhere else. If I felt it wasn't right, then yeah, I, I would, I would get it changed. Um, because I know where the tonally, where it sits. And I also know what it's going to need, you know, roughly speaking before we get, before we get into all the specifics with Lauren. Um, so yeah, no, I, I would, I would definitely, I was managing that a reasonable amount, but the editors are actually all very good at it and we're bringing really strong ideas. And in terms of the sort of <clears throat> the sort of you do the spotting session with Lorne, um Lorne sort of sends over um ideas for cues. Um how many sort of people are kind of involved in the decision making process of that? Is that is it are you sort of like a first port of call and sort of like a gatekeeper and then thereafter um people can have an opinion or how does how does it work? Oh yeah, no, everyone's got an opinion, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's, yeah. there's, no, there's no lack of opinions around. No. Um the, the uh yeah, so so I kind of my, my process uh, as it stands is uh yeah, I'm first port of call, uh, working with a music editor called Al Green, who helps uh, kind of manage everything. And um we kind of we've listened to Lauren's process is really interesting. It's not something I'd encountered before, which is that he has written uh, and put together incredibly high quality production value versions of suites, uh, like a massive like range of suites, which kind of relate to characters or moods or that type of thing. So we had started receiving that stuff, which were kind of reasonably broad stroke um, pieces of music, if you like. Um, that go through all sorts of kind of um, minors and majors, um, small and large. Um, we started receiving those while we're editing. So, so as we were shoot, actually as we we're shooting and editing, we were peppering things in, like where it felt as a, a good way to, to kind of diversify the palette, if you like, but keep it within Lauren's uh, world. Um, so then we kind of, Oh, you know, for example, it might be, he, he might have put, sent over a bunch of suites for, you know, Lord Asriel, you know, James McAvoy's character. But actually what we've, you know, found or what the editors found is they started putting it in was, oh, actually that piece of music is terrific for a totally different character at this point. So, so it's not so, um, it's not so obviously black and white when you, when you, when you start putting it in. Um, but that means that by the time you get to, um, the finishing of editing and the beginning of spotting, which is the process we're in at the moment, um, you've got quite you know a reasonable amount of that new stuff in there alongside more historic cues and alongside uh, completely uh, left field uh, cues from elsewhere. Um, and then we spot it and then we go through a process where bit by bit, each episode, 
in episodic order gets built up queue by queue by queue. We kind of, based on the temp, we kind of know where we want music and we have given notes on where we think it needs to go kind of thing and where it might fit holistically across the season in terms of the characters and what have you. Um, and then by the time we've got, let's say, uh, an episode which is, I feel in good order, which might have taken a let's say a couple of passes um, to, to get it into a place. I then play it to uh, the execs. There's two execs, Dan and Jane, um, and then they feed in, and their their feed, feeding back tends to be reasonably specific um, and minimal, but very helpful. Um, and then we're off and running, and then we move on to the next one, and Lauren has to get recording. So it's kind of it's all done in episode order. It's it's all pretty heavily managed, if you like. Um, and I don't know. I I, I I think it's an incredibly productive process, and um, I think what Lauren gives us in terms of production value is just kind of extraordinary in terms in terms of when it really works, how it lifts the picture, you know, which is what I'm always after. Like, how can we elevate it? And, es- and escalate it yeah absolutely um I'd, in terms of because you mentioned there you've got two execs does does that kind of decision making process become increasingly more complicated the more execs are involved uh yeah i mean on a season one it's it, yeah there's a bit of that um you know it took a while to land at a place as we were scoring where everyone was comfortable in the process and comfortable with what they felt was coming out of the process, you know, is this, the, is this the direction we're heading because the clock is ticking kind of thing. Um, by season three, it's pretty fluid. Um, and you know, the thing obviously doesn't really necessarily apply to the show, but applies to everything else as well is that talking about music, um, as you would know very well, I'm sure is incredibly difficult and how you, um, express what you think might be a problem or where you think it should go is that is pretty uh, fragile ground um, and as it's exactly the same with an edit to be honest um, people don't often know how to talk about editing um, so it's not it's not dissimilar um, but the problem with music is it's you know so it's it's musical <laughs> so it's just you know so it, it's in a realm of expertise and like um, kind of training even uh, that most of us uh, on the show don't have um, but it sounds like you've got quite a good handle on how to talk about music do you <laughs> yeah, i don't know what lauren would say about that but <laughs> but, but, but i I, uh, I come from it from a point of view of tone the characters the story the pacing how how should it make us feel um one of the one of the things that happens during scoring is that you, you kind of there's a few, there's obviously a few downsides that can happen during temp. One of them is that you've papered it with so much temp to get you through a whole set of problems that you know you have inherent in the story or whatever it is or in the sequence, and then you come back to scoring it and you're faced with all the same problems again. And it's like, oh God, how on earth are we going to solve this one? Um, or sometimes you know because temp is temp. Um, it's not always hitting what well, is rarely ever hitting every single thing you'd really like it to hit. So then when you get into scoring, you suddenly reveal a whole load of other things that you, you need to be uh, acknowledging um, or playing to. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I love the process. It's probably, you know, it's, it's up there with my most enjoyable processes on the show for sure. And I always loved it in, you know, previous films or what have you. You mentioned as well, Lorne, how 
what he does is so good in terms of lifting lifting the visual um what's the process with something like his dark materials of deciding you know pick, picking a composer is there a, presumably there's a pitching there's a sort of shortlist and a pitching process yeah it, it exists it, it had happened previous to me joining um but I, I have been in on that process multiple times and other things but but yeah they, they had um before i joined they had met a number of composers um all of whom were kind of interesting in their own regard for sure um and who had who had sent in um I don't know, sweets, I guess is the only way I can put it, uh, kind of demos, if you like, um, which is obviously really tricky because, you know, um, and I'm actually not even sure I I, I listened to, to many of the previous ones, um, but, you know, Lauren was just very obviously was bringing the goods, uh, especially in production value terms, which like is kind of priceless, quite literally, um, but, you know, kind of kind of extraordinary. But, but yeah, the um, I've been in... I've definitely been involved in some reasonably tortuous uh, kind of decision making around composer hires in the past, and like, you know, uh, I wouldn't even go into it. Like, it's kind of like, you know, but but ultimately it becomes, you know, what is it that you want? You know, what is it? What, what's the personality uh, of the composer, and how are they going to fit into this process, and how willing are they to be part of it? what do they think of the temp actually is a really interesting one. I don't rarely ever worked on anything that didn't have temp, if you liked. Uh, and the temp was usually pretty well worked out if you like, uh, again, but obviously needed to be improved. Um, and I'm definitely, uh, I'm definitely not of the mind that um, the temp just needs to be matched. You know, I, I always would want to raise it to the next level. Um, particularly in terms of how you give something identity, you know, um, because, I've had think I've had experiences in the past where I'd heavily tempt something, and I'd had to heavily temp it in with a range of different types of things in order to operate a number of different gears in the drama. By which I mean, you might have had some slightly more old-fashioned sounding score versus some more modern score versus as probably happened to me a few times, and that was because, from my point of view, and I think it's difficult for a composer though. But from my point of view, it wasn't about the sound per se. It was about, let's say, what that piece of music was kind of producing or emphasizing, let's say, at that moment in the film. Um, but then it's difficult for a composer because the composer's like, well, why the hell have you used, you know, James Newton Howard, Trent Reznor, and, you know, Louis Armstrong? I don't know, you know, and it's just a kind of bizarre thing. But it's like, no, no, that's not what you know i've had those conversations it's not quite what we were after we were trying we need we need the composer to bring the holistic kind of unified approach and i think in that instance that's where the composer needs to sort of read between the lines and sort of <laughs> understand sure. that it's like i'm not looking for a sort of a pastiche of uh, every different genre of the sun but, and i have and, and gosh i have end uh, i have had processes where you do end up with a pastiche and it's not enjoyable no <laughs> it, it was not desired it was not desired and it was uh unfortunately yeah that's what happened. but if nothing else for just having a sort of like a of just comedic impact of uh, what happens oh. when someone delivers a pastiche oh boy yeah. unless of course you're on major deadline it's like oh god what is this but um, it's happened yeah it has happened yeah um and I'd quite like to touch on um, Northern Soul as well, because obviously with his dark materials, it's slightly more the traditional process of film scoring, composers working to picture, spotting, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Northern Soul, m- much more, or is it entirely soundtrack? Is, was there any composition on? Is it? It, it was. It's all. It's all commercial tracks, and um, but it was supposed to have a score. 
um, there was a composer hired for it. Um, so when I joined, Elaine Constantine, the writer-director, is very much her project through and through. She'd been developing it for years. Um, she knew exactly what she wanted it to be or wanted it to feel like. It's probably the best way to put it. And um, they had, because it was limited budget, they had got a music supervisor called Gary Welch, who's terrific, to um, pre-clear research, all the rest of it, find the masters of, off the top of my head, it was something like 30 songs. I can't quite remember, but there were 30 songs, let's say, that uh, Elaine really, really adored and felt was were, was right for the film. And she has an encyclopedic knowledge of that whole world, which I don't. Uh, I was coming at it from a different point of view, if you like, just for the film's sake, if you like. But she, she had, she's very embedded in the culture. And, um, but there was a composer. And um, the, what happened was I was on the shoot editing as we were shooting. Uh, and I had this, let's say, 30 songs that I've been given, which is, you know, a, certainly a rarity. Uh, I mean, I've never, never been in that position before since. Uh, and some of the sequences would have been written with a song in mind. And there were some songs that were specific to a scene just because it was part of the story. Um, but beyond that, I did have a lot of freedom in how to use them. And I kind of probably quite quickly during the shoot, and I was therefore seeing Elaine every day at the end of every day, I, I went uh, beyond um, what was necessarily in the script quite quickly. So let's say I, I used the song and elaborated it across a kind of whole section that wasn't really the thought process and all the while through that, and this is really only the shoot, which is only a five week period. Um, all the while through it, we're talking about scoring. And I remember doing, putting together a scene. I forget which one it was. I think it might've been, uh, the opening actually with the main characters walking down his street. Um, I put on a bit of temp, which I recall was something like, maybe a Dick and Hinchliffe cue, like a Tinder sticks cue or something. I can't quite remember something kind of reasonably moody, melodic, quite interesting, um, which I felt was kind of good for that moment. And then Lane had an abject reaction to it immediately. And I just, you know, hit stop, hit delete. Yeah, that um, was a mistake. That was a mistake. Yeah, I don't know. How, that, oh, how, did, know. how did, how did yeah. that get in there? <laughs> um, and, and that was because she, she had a very specific score in mind which was she wanted the score to be like a um, score from the 60s of a kitchen sink drama. It's like a um, Johnny Dankworth type score. Like, in other words, jazz-inflected score, which I, in the back of my head, felt was absolutely wrong. But, of course, I was going along with it, going, okay, well, geez, let's see how this develops, but that sounds like a terrible idea. And so then I put on something that was anti that, which she absolutely hated. <laughs> uh, so that ended that conversation. And then, and then I kind of parked that chat bit by bit by bit though. What you're doing is, as you put the film together, as it starts getting longer and longer, quite literally, uh, it's got a hell of a lot of songs in it. And we watched the film, the first cut, which was, you know, I think that the final film ended up being a hundred minutes, but the first cut was like two hours 40. So it was like an hour longer. Um, and we sat and watched it on like day one of post, just me and her went for lunch afterwards. And it was just the songs. And I hadn't put, I'd removed, there was no temp scoring at all in it, but there was space, you know, you could have put temp in it. And we went for lunch afterwards. And I said, thinking, I'm not sure how this is going to go down. <laughs> I, I said, we shouldn't have any score. 
it's going to clash too much with the style of the songs. We'll never get it right. It'll kill it. It'll smother it. It's got to be about the songs because that's what the story's about. And instantaneously, she was like, yeah, you're right. Okay. And that was it. We moved on so that we didn't talk about scoring ever again. So then it became about how the songs were used, how they feel in the rooms. Um, and we tried, you know, we tried all sorts of those that, those different tracks in different places and what have you, and then came up with where, you know, where we ended up. Yeah. And in terms of selection of those tracks, and what's driving where they're placed, how much of it is driven by lyrical content and how much of it is driven purely by mood and feel of the music? It's most, it was mostly mood and feel. I mean, beyond the two or three that form a part of the story, there's one song in particular that forms a recurring part of the story. Um, it's a track that they're trying to find uh, a, a copy of. Um, the, you know, l- lyrically, you know, like, for example... You just find it. It was all kind of happy accident stuff, you know. It's, it's some some stuff just sits really well, and some of it feels anti. And you know, sometimes the counterpoint is good. I mean, one of the songs actually that uh, was in the original selection, I'm pretty sure, but which was not Northern Soul in genre, was a brand new key by Melanie, which was like a number one or top ten hit at the time, uh, 1970. Two, I think it's uh, or seventy one, um, and to to Elaine's amazement, this song was supposed to play in the background of the scene. I think that's what it was intended for. And to her amazement, I stuck it on the front title sequence, which is completely anti what what you know at first glance what the film is about. But actually, that was exactly the point because I, I wanted to put make a statement at the front, which was the world in which the protagonist lives in, this is what he hears. And in five to 10 minutes later, he's going to hear something that's completely different. Um, so I felt that it played into the environment and the time. Um, but I think she came out in a rash every time she heard it, but, but, it, but it kind of, you know, it fulfilled a, a, a kind of major story point. I felt, and she felt, I think as well. Getting a taste. I always feel that, a lot of our creative decisions are driven by what we've been exposed to creatively, whether you know, from artistic or musical points of view throughout our lives. Um, are there sort of specific kind of seminal pieces of music, seminal albums, seminal artists that you can pick out from sort of your usually more formative years, which you think have gone a long way to informing how you hear music and how you implement it in productions today? Um, I think that, oh, for sure, um, I think that it's difficult because I don't, I don't um, have my own taste, let's say, uh, and I've built up, you know, my own kind of range of favourites or what have you, which are, you know, none of which are particularly kind of groundbreaking, you know, different from anyone else. Um, I think that, um, but but I don't I don't listen to a lot of film scores. Uh, I don't re- I only listen to film scores when they're on films, um, and if I find them interesting, I make a note of them or what have you. But but I listen to a lot of commercial music you know that's what what i listen to i I think i think that the kind of i've never i'm not a fan of pastiche at all like i'm a really anti-pastiche person (laughs) i don't know why uh and i'm I'm all i'm i'm happy enough with making a nod to something that's saying something i'm making but i do not want to replicate something that's been done before if i can possibly avoid it unless unless it's a very very interesting reference uh but so so like let's say the films that you know were formative would be things like you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, I mean, this is quite, I'm just thinking through the eighties, uh, uh, Hitchcock movies, psycho, psycho is the first one I remember clearly. Um, Bernard Herrmann, taxi driver, 
uh, Die Hard, um, I got into Polanski movies, all this stuff. I don't, I don't really, th- I mean, I don't really think there's a simple way to connect any of that. I don't think with with anything that I've worked on in, in any specific way. I mean, apart from that, I find them all really satisfying. Um, and you know, I do think that the use of, for example, I do think the scoring in Die Hard is quite exceptional. I think the you know the way that the counter counterpoints the picture and the use of melody is extraordinary, and all the rest of it. All, all these things made a massive impression. I'm not, I'm not sure that I very rarely. I mean, this is the way I see it. Of course, I might be missing something. I very rarely, when I'm working on something, watch it and go, yeah, you know what? We should really do a, really do a die hard here. Um, you know, it's kind of like, I, I, don't, I don't see it in those terms. Um, but, um, and then in terms of like commercial music, like, I don't know, uh, you know, I spent my teens thinking that the Stones were it. And then I got into my 20s and I thought, actually, you know, the Beatles were it, weren't they? <laughs> and, and, and I haven't really, I've, I've, I keep kind of dipping in and out of them for the last couple of decades. And then like, I don't know, I, I like a lot of jazz and a lot of hip hop and kind of a lot of soul. And I don't know, I, I like really strong melody music for sure. There's no doubt about that. But if I think about like things I've worked on, and that's why, you know, something like Northern Soul was so much fun for me because I loved, I, I grew to love the music so much. I didn't know a lot of it before, for sure. But I learned, I really fell in love with it. The, um, I, I, despite all of that and having a love for a melody and what have you, um, or an earworm, and there's plenty of things I'm worked on, I'm sure, where I think the, the style of the composer or the style of the piece didn't totally lend itself to that kind of approach. So, you know, where something historic materials does, um, so I, I don't think I bring too many preconceptions, I hope, um, to the things I'm working on. I try to kind of react to what they are in the moment. Yeah. Is there, is there a piece of music or an album that you think when you first heard it sort of made you stop and go, whoa, hold the phone, what is that? That's <laughs> just revolutionised your, your is it, The first thing that comes to mind is that, uh, not, not, not that cool. Go uh, on, then. <laughs> right. Uh, it's MC the, Hammer. I wish. Uh, the, the, uh, no, I wasn't cool enough for that. Uh, it, was, it was about a year or two after that. I was starting to buy music. So I'd had, uh, you know, I'd had a couple of albums bought, when, you know, given to me as Christmas presents. I think I'd had a couple of Beatles best ofs bought for me uh, Christmas by my brother, I think. And uh, so I'd, you know, learned some of that or, you know, got used to some of it, but I wasn't really listening to it by the time I was 12 or 13 per se. And, but then by the time I got into, when I was 14, for some reason, and I have no regrets because I still listen to them over and over. I really got into gangster rap and, uh, and I, I still am. Um, and then at the same time, I started getting into the metal of the day. Um, and, the, and when you say, when you say that, that, that hold the phone, I definitely wasn't on the phone, but it's, it's the first track of a Pantera album. Not, not a band that have gone down in history, perhaps, you know, broadly. Vulgar Display of Power? Vulgar Display of Power, Mouth for War. Yeah, the first song. I remember pressing play on it. I had a cassette, bought, bought the second-hand cassette, and I remember bought it from the second-hand shop in Belfast after school. Friends of mine listened to it, and I had never heard it before, and you know, it, wasn't, it wasn't on the charts, let's say. And uh, it wasn't it wasn't in the hit parade. And uh, I, so I went, out, I went out and bought Volker Display of Power, this old cassette that absolutely stank of cigarettes. It was rank. <laughs> and uh, it's all that made me want to throw up. And um, press play on it. And I swear I heard the opening riff the first 30 seconds. I had to stop and rewind it and listen to it again. And that was yeah. like the groove of it. There's something about the groove and the weight of it was just like, yeah. oh, God, I could listen to that right now. 
I, th- I think I had a similar reaction when I heard. I mean, I, I but I was into Pantera. There were some, some riffs in that. Dime, Dimebag Daryl. Oh. Some of his riffs were phenomenal. But uh, when I heard Bomb Track by Rage Against the oh. Machine for the first time, but that, so Rage Against the Machine would have been absolutely. Yeah, I mean, even I mean, I'm unbelievable. I still listen to it. Yeah, that first yeah. album was extraordinary. And it's funny as well when you're talking about because you, you also mentioned this sort of gangster rap, but so there was a dichotomy between myself and my friends because I was kind of very much into uh, the metal side of things, the Metallica, the Rage Against the Machine. And I had friends who were into the, into gangster rap and, you know, Onyx was one of, uh, of the time that sort of kept coming up. Wasn't, wasn't a big Onyx fan, but yeah, go on. <laughs> no, but, it, but it was funny how it was, there was still this sort of music war of like whose music is better than who. And so we'd have these sort of raging debates about, yeah, but they don't play any of their own instruments. And he's like, yeah, but in a fight, Onyx would win. And like, what was that got to do with it? <laughs> but I was, I was interviewing Stephen Warbeck in episode one and he, when he was growing up at school, it was, always, it was what he you mentioned which was the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones it was which was cooler and it's it's funny how that kind of perpetuates all throughout because I think for me it was the Britpop it was like do you like Blur or Oasis and it's like why can't we just like both but well, I, I think, think I, was I, Oasis. I, I definitely come from a world where Pantera and uh, you know Onyx can be can be talked about in the oh not Onyx I'm not gonna I don't like Onyx uh, Pantera and Ice-T can be talked about in the, in the same breath or Ice Cube sorry more ready um but like well, Ice Ice T did have um, he, the, his tracks like Cop 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 Killer and stuff like that. They had sort of quite big guitarists. He, he had a terrible metal band called Body yeah. Count. Who Body I, Count? That was it. Who Body I wouldn't Count. encourage anyone to listen to. They're absolutely awful. But <laughs> but but uh, but yeah, I like his other stuff. But the um, uh, I was I was not a Blur or an Oasis fan. So I was I was just listening to all this other stuff that was going on and learning. Yeah, you know, listening to more hip hop and bit by bit, and probably got into it sounds really pretentious probably got into jazz by the time i was you know maybe 18 i think i you know as by which i mean i just went and bought a bunch of miles davis cds um but um yeah my 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 teenage years were, were spent kind of uh, jumping between hip-hop and metal i think with a and then into the stones and then bob dylan and etc etc yeah well, it's interesting as well because it seems to be because I always think there's a there's two camps. Is there's the camp where people just sort of listen to the radio and take what's sort of given to them, and then there's the other people who are sort of out there sort of showing a sort of curiosity towards music and sort of exploring and going, well, that's fine what you're playing on the radio, but I reckon I can probably and, and actually you sort of end up going down these rabbit holes of like discovering metal. I mean, I, I went from sort of metal and then it sort of merged merged into sort of Jamiroquai funk and soul, and I was listening yeah. to them at the same time, but it was yeah, just this yeah. whole sort of progression sure. of like hearing stuff and going, wow, this is incredible. What's going on? Rather than sort of sticking rigidly, going like, no, no, I'm only yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not overly purist actually, which no. yeah, quite quite a broad uh, taste. Which I think, from a curiosity curiosity perspective, is probably a, a good thing. And I think as well as a creative, you know, in terms of editing, in terms of when you're thinking about what piece of music is going to best work, Pantera see, all, all but, yeah. day long. Just stick some Pantera on the front of it; it'll really put everyone off. <laughs> I'm waiting for this production, or I'm waiting for some kind of winking. His dark, dark material season three, right at the end, like the closing credits of the last episode, will be a Pantera track. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And what about kind of? So, I was chatting to one of the editors I was talking to, um, Paolo Pandolfo, who's worked on The Crown. He talks about you know having a similar sort of seminal moment, visually speaking, um, when when sort of watching. He cited Jurassic Park. I think my for me, it was Star Wars. I mean, it was obviously the film, but also I think the music played a huge role in in, in that speaking to me in some, uh, you know, almost epiphany. Um, and he talked about Jurassic Park. Are there any sort of visual sort of TV series or films which, you know, throughout your life you think of sort of 
you know made you sort of go hold the phone what's that and yeah i mean uh, good the band the ugly you know, like i re- returned to many times die hard i returned to many times alien um which is a really interesting score uh, jerry goldsmith is fascinating um in terms of the range of things he did kind of extraordinary um i think yeah that that would be my t- kind of yeah from from and then sort of psycho vertigo rear window um kind of hitchcock is kind of keep keeps kind of recurring in my head i'd say um yeah those probably probably like the early formative years the Haran years yeah mm, amazing the Haran years the golden years everybody remembers that period the Haran years um best forgotten yeah yeah uh, i'm sure i'd love to i'd love to know more about it actually um amazing well um steven it's been kind of a fascinating insight into kind of everything musical and, and visual and editing and, and production based um I'm kind of, uh, I love kind of weird, nerdy trivia um, about TV, film or music. Do you have a sort of weird kind of like little known fact or trivia tidbit about so, uh, TV? You, you sent me this question hopefully a little while ago, so, so I had time to think about it. it, it but but it, took about, it took about 10 seconds until it suddenly came into my head, which is one that I, I don't know if I've ever said it to anyone. Uh, but here I am. So there's, it's kind of, it's a combination of music and sound, um, to an extent, but it's just a little recurring thing that I've noted. And I'm pretty sure no one has put in a, in a master's or a PhD just yet. So they can, they can take it if they want. Um, it's the recurrence. If you look at rear window and Rosemary's baby and the Godfather, three different films, and it's probably, I'm sure, been done in other films. They all do exactly the same thing um, in reasonably innocuous scenes, which is that, starting at Rear Window, is that in the background of a particular scene, um, you hear the sound of someone playing scales on a piano. So in Rear Window, it's probably quite early on. I don't quite remember where it happens. Uh, he's pro- uh, James Stewart's probably surveying the courtyard or something and, you know, looking at the neighbours and there's a piano player, a songwriter in one of the flats across from him. I don't, I don't remember if at what point you see or hear it, but what it does is it's just that kind of familiar, inevitable tune, you know, kind of a tune and kind of not a tune goes up and down and up and down and up and down and has a kind of, you know, you, you kind of know where it's going, which is kind of interesting. And it adds a kind of atmosphere. It also, it, it kind of adds interesting tension. It also adds a kind of sense of atmosphere to the place and also adds a sense that there are other people around. Then Rosemary's Baby, I think it's when they first see the flat uh, Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes. If not, it's one of the early scenes in the flat uh, and they're learning about the flat, being introduced to it and hearing about the neighbours. And again, in the background, there's someone playing piano scales, which I'm sure must be a reference to your window. And then in The Godfather, when Vito, uh, Marlon Brando, is, I think it's just before he gets shot, uh, when he's standing in front of the orange stall, uh, he's out in the street, uh, someone is playing a piano scale out through a window in that street. Wow, that's interesting. Is I suppose there's almost like um, a childlike scariness to it as well. Sort of like as a child somewhere rehearsing. Wow, I did not know that. That's really. I'm gonna have to go and have a look at those. Those. We should watch. Everyone should watch those three films anyway. Yeah. Um, 
it's interesting as well because you've, you've mentioned Trent Reznor a few times often, Trent, and he did a really interesting thing with the score for Soul, yeah. which was because obviously it was about piano. Um, the kind of one of the main um, um, melodies in that was sort of basically a sort of going up and down a scale, right. um, which um, was really interesting. So, uh, wow, okay, that's brilliant. Okay, well, that's feel free to run with that one, and you know. It, it could get be, some funding might, to research it more. <laughs> there might be more. There might be like a whole number of films out there. I, I've, I have a funny feeling that maybe that they did it in other films as well. Those directors, and I bet you someone else has done it. But yeah, yeah. it's a little talked about tiny trivial detail yeah an inside joke in the industry they know it a bit like in the 80s in any movie when everybody any said anybody said what their phone number was it always started with 555 555 yeah like any telephone number across any movie in the 80s like what's what, what's your telephone number 555 and then whatever but every single one um that's brilliant um awesome scene we're just going to finish up with a couple of quick fire questions oh, what's your favorite biscuit oh man uh, digestive Chocolated or not? Dark chocolate. Yeah. Dark or milk? Dark, 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 dark chocolate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's standard. Um, a little known fact about you? Oh, gosh. A little known fact. Oh, man. I mean, everyone knows everything about me. Uh, <laughs> I once challenged Channing Tatum to a dance off. Oh, did you win? No. <laughs> I was very drunk. And uh, and he didn't get into it. It wasn't. It was more fun for me than it was for him. I, something tells me he doesn't remember. <laughs> I'd like to see it because a little known fact about me is I severed the nerves and tendons in my left hand during a dance off. Um, <laughs> so, if, but I can't say it was against Channing Tatum. No, he would have beat amazing. me. He would have beat me. Yeah. Um, what scares Stephen Heron? Oh gosh, what scares me? Oh man. Uh, uh, ooh, I don't know. I don't know. Are you fearless? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm without soul, so uh, nothing no, gets to me. Nothing. I fear nothing. Uh, okay, well, if anything comes to you. Um, and I suppose the final question is, um, what advice, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give to your younger self? Probably just to remain fairly confident in the path that you're going, you know, and it's quite, getting into filmmaking is incredibly difficult. And um, also incredibly difficult to kind of sustain a sustain a living from, um, but you know the 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 choices out there uh, for anyone wanting to get into it as well are quite wide ranging, and it doesn't always have to be. As I said, you know, my understanding of it when I was fourteen was you had to be a director to be into filmmaking. Actually, there's a huge range of things out there, and I, I think it's just trying to um, find you know encourage myself and others uh to find their way kind of softly softly through that and, and work work out what it is that they can contribute sure and obviously you mentioned your routine was you sort of went to university you studied um english lit and film and then went to be a runner would you would you see that would you change that or do you think there's a different way or are you do you, or do you think i suppose i'm asking for anyone who's interested in in getting into um this area do you think that's the sort of best way in or would you do you, things differently you don't need a you don't need a university degree um to do what i'm doing uh the thing that i got from it was i met a great group of friends uh who are still friends and it was a great experience i loved the degree great teachers learned quite a lot um, learned to articulate myself in a, in a group, if you like, um, put forward an opinion, which has ended up being quite useful. Um, 
but you know those are kind of life skills uh you don't really need you don't you definitely don't need a degree um i think you people should only do a degree if they really have a a kind of hunger for it um and you know it is costing a lot more money let's say um hunger hunger for debt yeah yeah i love having no money um if you if you love being poor then go to university if you Um, want to spend the next 10 years paying off your student loan then come to university today and definitely don't go to university in london god if anyone's asking just don't go to university in london which i didn't do um yeah i think go get go get a runner job best thing you could ever do and that those those friendships that you mentioned at university was did that form part of a sort of part of a professional network now or is it completely unrelated quite unrelated actually yeah so we were all kind of from quite different backgrounds and different interests some of them some of my good friends i met on the same degree but no we've all kind of gone quite different different paths really um in fact i was about to say i don't have many friends in the film industry i've got i've got i've got a lot of friends in the film industry they just don't i don't happen to be people i met before i started working yeah okay Okay, that's great. That's some some interesting insights. I think for anyone who wants to kind of get into good luck, into film, my good other luck. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. It's been uh, fascinating insights. Um, good luck with finishing up Historic Materials oh, season yeah. three. Um, thank you. What's next on the uh, agenda? Anything lined up? Lots of sleeping. 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 Up. I, I've, I've heard about this mythical thing. Uh, yeah, end of the year. Uh, I'm just going to take a break. Uh, because this is i've still i've only got eight months to go you know so <laughs> <laughs> wow okay yeah. so oh, really so this is going to take you really to the end of the year yeah and then it'll yeah that'll be four years wow, since four years. just under four years yeah so the break so will be I, need a, you. I need a break <laughs> yeah give me a break uh, give me a break um and in terms of if people want to find you do you, are you uh, do you social um <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm to be found in the pubs of Soho. Uh, the, 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 uh, I, I'm on. I, 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 it, it makes me feel sick to say that I joined LinkedIn a little while ago. Right. Uh, that's the best you can hope. I've got that's a website with an email address. That's probably better. Well, I always think, to be honest, Stephen, it's like if you have time to social media, then uh, you're, you're not busy enough. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> it's, if, it sounds like you're incredibly busy and uh, like th- making time to get on uh, Facebook and Insta would just not be. It's just uh, also, you know, t- to work well, I need a soul and uh, I don't feel like chipping it away day by day on that, <laughs> that, that stuff, you know. No. Well, so there you go. The best place to find Stephen Harron is in and around the John Snow or other pubs in, in, in the depths. Star and Garter. So, uh, Star and Garter. Star and Garter. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for chatting. Thank you. And um, yeah, good luck with everything. Thanks very much. Love to speak to you. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, and given that you've listened this far, I feel you might have, then I would be honoured and incredibly grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate and review on your podcast platform of choice. By subscribing, you'll automatically be notified each time a new episode drops. And by rating the show, you tell the artificial intelligence that will soon be running the world that this podcast is worth listening to. I certainly get a lot of insights and value from these conversations, and I genuinely hope you do too. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email me, podcast at larpmusic.com. Larpmusic.com is my digital abode, and the home of the podcast is larpmusic.com forward slash sync music matters podcast. And sync music matters podcast is hyphenated. Thanks again for listening. And until next time.